Network interface is enabled. Bold, bold. Hello and welcome to the Coming Out of the Basement podcast. With me is your host, BJ. I'm your host, Carlos, and we are a member of the Network Interface Podcast Network. Tonight, we have a very special episode, which is the entire reason I wanted to do a podcast in the first place, our Halloween episode. Very exciting. Do we need to apologize for the fact that this is not actually coming out during Halloween? Wait, this, what do you mean? This isn't Halloween? <laughs> so the, the honest truth is uh, Carlos and I had plenty of plans to try and record this, and then as life does, gets in the way. Um, we were actually going to record while I was on the road. I was on the road for a conference. Um, and I was gonna, we were gonna try and record. I brought all my gear with me and my recording equipment, all that stuff. And and we we do this over Skype, and we were gonna try and record. And then, in my conference, we had 250 geeks from the IT industry all trying to connect to the hotel's wireless, and it's running like a classy subnet. And we just crashed that sucker. And the entire week, that 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 internet was down there. So I'm like trying to watch Netflix off my little tiny screen on my cell phone. Yeah, pretty much the last three and a half weeks have completely been conspiring against us. Something came up every time we wanted to record. So very happy that we could finally do it today. We, we, we constantly were like, you know, record tonight, record tonight. Like something happens on my side or caller's side. And yeah, so we try to. So- we did, we did. So sorry about that. Um, so tonight we've got, of course, a lot of news has happened as be since it's been a while since we've recorded, and we've got uh, we've got some travels of our own to talk about uh, during Halloween time or around that time period that that might be interesting. And uh, I've you know I've got a list of some of uh, my Halloween favorites, uh, you know, scary movies and and similar video game actually. So, uh, but we got a lot of news to talk about. Uh, did you want to talk about that big one? Let's talk. I mean, it's it's the elephant in the room. It's the big one on, that's been on everyone's mind since it happened. Um, Disney buying up Lucasfilm, and it basically the reaction I've been kind of surprised about. There's been some positive reaction, but a lot of negative reaction, and a lot of negative reaction towards George Lucas, which I didn't quite understand. Yeah, uh, and really, reactions have been all over the place. It's been very interesting to see uh, the fan art and the the comments that have been coming out on on the social media. You know, people, of course, not huge fans of of, of Disney uh, in a lot of in a, in some some ways. Uh, the people were kind of uh, upset because they thought that their uh, their Star Wars would be Disneyfied, and immediately the next thing I saw was, but this does this mean that Joss Whedon could be involved with Star Wars? And then, and then you know, all kinds of things have been going on here. So I don't know what what was your take on it. Um, my take was overall positive on it. I mean, people may have their issues with Disney, but I think overall Disney's a good company. Like when they bought Marvel, they did it. Okay, here's the reality from it, right? Disney buys this stuff to make money off of like the toys and the rides and all that good stuff. But I think when it actually comes to the the core intellectual property, the core IP, I think they're pretty good on being hands off and letting it just be strong on its own, rather than saying, "Oh, we got to throw in a, uh, a a mouse with a lightsaber or something like that," right? Because I think Disney understands that. In order to keep selling all the toys and keep the IP healthy, it needs to kind of stand on its own and be strong and, you know, uh, be properly representative or, or uh, be, be, you know, um, well-defined and, and, you know, 
I think that's what we feel with like the Marvel impact that they've had, and they had the, you know they did the same thing with Miramax, right? They they got the Miramax uh, um, film company, and they kind of left them alone to do kind of arts films and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So, and and you know uh, Disney's been very good, you know, through um, civil liberties and stuff. You know, they have the uh, the gay pride you know parades and stuff like that. Uh, so, I, I I mean it's it's not like they're Walmart. I don't understand why people hate the mouse. Well, there's some – so in, in, in my area of study, the reason that, that Disney is so disliked as a company is because of their um, – they've been overly aggressive with both copyright and trademark stuff. And, I, and I'm using that in a very informed way since they were, they were largely responsible for what is popularly known as, of course, the Mickey Mouse Extension Act as far as copyright goes uh, because the, basically as Mickey Mouse was going to go into the public domain, they lobbied incredibly hard to extend copyright for the entire world. Or, you know, for the U.S., but really it, it's, it had a much greater effect than that. But in general, you know, I also love the Haunted Mansion and Disney World and stuff. So it's a very, and, and, you know, a lot of the actual the materials that they, that they generate. So it's a very, uh, a very mixed bag in, in some respects. But overall, I think this move is a good move. I mean, a lot of fans, of course, were unhappy with George Lucas in general, you know, but prior to this taking over Star Wars and kind of afraid of what he might do with the property. And I think Disney's done, uh, some ha- definitely has demonstrated they can do some good things, like with, like you mentioned with the Marvel universe, and uh, and they basic. Uh, what I've heard is Michael Arndt is going to be writing the script of that, who was the writer for Toy Story three and Little Miss Sunshine, and he, apparently he is probably going to be doing the next script for the Star Wars movie. I mean, I kind of divorce myself from those two because like Disney is a huge corporation, so the people that are Defending their copyright are not the same people who are making their films and stuff like that, right? They're they're two different arms of the business, right? And it is hard to divorce uh, the, I, the company, much I, like Hasbro and Watsy are different, but it's kind of hard to divorce that. No, I, I get it, right? And I get it, and and but they're just doing what everyone else is doing. I mean, this is the other thing I don't understand. If you want to talk about douchebags about their copyright, why isn't why doesn't everyone hate Apple? Oh, people have problems with Apple too. But I see people like just you know lining up by the millions for their iPhones and their iPads and stuff like that, not caring about you know the the people who die making it overseas and stuff like that, and you know how they're you know crippling the uh, the IT industry with their their copyright violations against you know Samsung and other people. Patents. Patents. I'm sorry, patents. Yeah. But mm-hmm. but you know the the same applies, and and I think I, overall culturally people. Um, are are happier and and like you know the the Apple products because it's kind of a cultural thing that everyone's really into. It's hip and 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 um you know cool and stuff like that. Whereas with Disney, I, I just feel that hate and and they're just you know doing I think to a lesser degree than what Apple does of protecting their their stuff. I think that's that's I don't think it's to a lesser degree. I think I think the I actually think in general their their laws have been yeah, pretty. So they've actually caused changes in the law, whereas Apple, I think, is abusing the existing law uh, with the Samsung and the HTC fight, which is really it turned really nasty uh, across oh, it ra- around the world. It's gotten you know Samsung, HTC, Apple. Wow, I'm I'm astonished at all the stuff that's been happening you know worldwide with that kind of thing. We should totally talk about that sometime. Um, but uh, yeah, so I, I I think in geek in geek culture and in popular culture, well, actually, I don't know. Popular culture, Disney's really popular. Like Disney Disney things are very very popular. In geek culture, I think Disney has kind of a, a, a sullied name in some ways, and partly because of like you know we talk about Disneyfication of things, you know. Um, 
a lot of the original responses I saw were uh, Princess Leia, you know, getting to meet the other princesses. Have you have you seen those things that have come out? Yeah, uh, which have been kind of, you know, that, that kind of thing, uh, you know, how much of, how much more of a, an action princess she was and stuff like that. But in, in general, though, I, I think that their, their animation is pretty good. I, I do like a lot of the stuff that Disney does. Um, and so I'm, I'm, I think this was a positive thing overall. Um, I think the, the new Star Wars thing will be very interesting. Um, so I don't know. They, it could go, it could go a lot of ways. Yeah, like I said, I think overall, I think it's going to be positive for the... Okay, so the other part of the the kind of like odd knee-jerk reaction are is uh, people are being very aggressive towards Lucas for selling it, right? Um, getting kind of upset with him selling it, you know, saying it's just a money grab and stuff like that. I haven't seen so much of that, but that just might be what I'm reading. Yeah, I, I've seen some of that on the internet, and, and apparently he's donating like half of it or all of it to charities and stuff like that. The, mm-hmm. You know, well, it's a... Four billion dollars. Yeah, four billion dollars. And my other like comment on that is, uh, we, I mean, he's not really doing anything with it, right? And and that's that's what surprised me is that a lot of the same people who really hated what Lucas did with Star Wars, I, I presume, are maybe the people who are uh, also angry about him for selling it. I don't know if that's the case or not, but that's kind of a weird juxtaposition there. Yeah. And and here's the thing is is like you know Lucas suffered such a blowback from the the three movies he released earlier that there's no way he was going to make any more, and you know he, honestly sort of as the fan base we didn't really trust him anymore to make the movies He's, he was just too close to the product at that point right and, yeah and, yeah uh, sorry go ahead no, go go for it but I, I think that w- now that we have Disney involved in it they're going to bring in a fresh perspective. We're gonna see a new angle at it. They're they're gonna you know bring it back, and I, th- I think they're just gonna make it healthy again. Yeah, and I mean it wasn't just Star Wars that was that was sold. I'm kind of curious to see what's gonna happen with Lucas Arts, right? The the video game branch of, of Lucasfilm, that little Lucas Empire there. Yeah. And uh, what's gonna happen with like Indiana Jones and other other properties that were involved? Well, they said they 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 were asked about that, right? Because when you talk about Lucas Arts and Lucas Films, it not, it's not just you know. The uh, the Star Wars franchise. It's it's Indiana Jones, and is it the Dark Crystal also that goes with that? I, I, I'm not sure, but I know Labyrinth did. Yeah, Labyrinth with the, with them. I knew that one, but I wasn't and, sure. Uh, Willow, I think, also did. Yeah. Um, and so they were asked. They, they weren't asked about those, but they were asked about uh, Indiana Jones, and they said that at this time they don't have any plans to do Indiana Jones, right? And they started working on their shortlisted directors that they'd like to do the film. Mm-hmm. And so some names have been thrown around, and some people have already turned it down, right? Um, they haven't even been like officially offered, but directors are already starting to say, "No, you know, not my piece of the pie." So Spielberg came out and said he would he didn't want to work on it. You know, he said it would be too weird to work on something that was um, Lucas's ba- brainchild, right? Because right. um, those two are close. Uh, Zack Snyder said that he didn't want to do it. He's a huge Star Wars fan, but he felt that there's too much pressure or history behind it. Um, but And, of course, they're shopping around to... I think the two top names are J.J. Abrams and Joss Whedon. You know, <laughs> Joss Whedon has the third highest grossing movie ever, right? You know, People right. finally learn that he's a, he is a great director and can do great things. Um, and I think most of us knew that already, but that was more of sort of the cult click who knew that from, you know, the Buffy stuff and the Firefly stuff, but now everyone right. knows it. And, I mean, J.J. Abrams, you know, he relaunched Star Trek, right? Right. And so they're thinking he could do it. But then I've heard other names floated around, like David Fincher, which would be a very dark Star Wars if he did it, <laughs> right? 
Um, the guy who did Kick Ass, Mark Miller, I think. Yeah, Mark Miller. He's been floated around. Are the director or the writer? The the director. Okay, who was that? I think I for some reason I mentioned him recently, and I'm trying to remember why. Uh, Matthew Vaughn. Yeah. So they're they're starting to kick some names around, and and some some pretty hefty people are up there, and I think. I think people are going to kind of keep it at arm's length for a little while because they're still not sure. Like it, 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 it's got some history behind it, you know, and and some of it's really good, some of it's not so good, right? Mm-hmm. So you're kind of inheriting a bit of a mess when you you get involved in that, right? Oh, look, look, it's in his Wikipedia page. Vaughn is one of the many directors rumored to be in line to direct Star Wars Episode Seven, right? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> they've also well, let's also talk about who's like really equipped to handle a, a sweeping saga like this. Freaking Peter Jackson, of course, right? Yes. You know, he is, out of all the directors, he's probably the most equipped to handle, like, a sweeping trilogy like this. You know, he's he's done it before. He's done it a second time now, where he's created a, you know, through a, a cutthroat budget and, you know, just really good planning and, and really handling a, an epic cast. He's, you know, doing another epic trilogy. Right. So, but does he want to, but here's the question. Does he want to do that? He's already defined by when when because those movies came out around the same time, Lord of the Rings and Star Wars. And let's be honest, Lord of the Rings was the better, you know, by far the better product that came out at that time. You know, award-winning, groundbreaking, epic, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think he's already defined himself with his trilogy. So does he want to be try to get defined by another set? I don't know. That's that's something he'll decide. It'd be fun. It would. Also, I think we really need to have Ian McKellen play more people, so uh, that would be interesting. As Sir well. Ian McKellen is—I I do not like—I don't dislike him in anything. Everything I see him in, he's absolutely <laughs> exactly. awesome. I loved him as Magneto. I think he was a perfect Magneto, right? So he's got that—he's got the—the—he's now known for in, in in a set of trilogies, right? He in one trilogy he was a bad guy, in another trilogy he was a good guy, right? So he's he's got that going for him. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right. Any other comments on this, or did you want to talk about other news? Um, let's see. I think we've really covered all of it. I mean, we have so little information at this point right now. All we know is that they are doing a new movie. No, oh, here's the one thing I did want to mention. Right? People need to understand. Even though they have the rights to Star Wars, they don't have the distribution rights for the the original movies. Right? Fox has that. For, so for the first six movies, episodes one through six. Fox still gets to release those movies in Blu-ray and DVD and whatever format until 2020. So when people are asking, you know, because um, uh, Disney announced that their plan, they want to have the first movie out by 2015 and then the next movie is 2017 and 2019. And people are like, well, that's kind of weird. Why are you doing that? That's why. Because by 2019, when that third movie comes out and it's been in theaters for a while, 2020 will come around. The rights will revert back to them and then they can release the Ultimate Edition pack of all nine movies. That's that's the overall business plan that they're going for. Gotcha. So, so you mentioned Peter Jackson earlier. I saw I saw a clip of Peter Jackson that was kind of interesting. So of course he's on the set of The Hobbit, direct, you know, working on that. And uh, and the clip was he was talking about someone who visited the set, and he's like, "I've never met a bigger Tolkien geek in my life." Is basically what he said. So of course on the set they have a Tolkien expert, right? Mm-hmm. And and they did a quiz off between this this person and and the Tolkien expert, and the the, the guest won. Do you know who this person was? Who? Stephen Colbert. 
What? No That's way. What, yeah, look it up. Apparently, Stephen Colbert is a giant Tolkien geek, which is well, kind of awesome. Well, he Stephen Colbert has been a self-admitted geek for a while. He's, oh, yeah. He's, you know, when when um, Gary Gygax died, he, you know, rolled a D20, because he's into D&D. He's written, written stuff about Dungeons & Dragons before. Yes. And he brings up, he they make he makes little references to Warcraft and D&D all the time. Yeah. Uh, his, his, whatever charisma paladin that he rings up every so often. So yeah, I thought that was, that was, uh, both appropriate and kind of funny. That, that is actually really cool. Um, did you see that thing Joss Whedon did the other, uh, about, for the, the election thing about how, you know, like, <laughs> wasn't that, I mean, Joss Whedon's like the last person I thought would get in, involved in politics and, and he got involved in politics only like in his own way, right? It was awesome. So if you haven't seen it, Joss Whedon does his little thing where he's like washing the dishes in his kitchen. He's talking about, you know, um, vote for whoever if you want the zombie apocalypse to come. And it's quite obvious he is not a Romney supporter, right? And his <laughs> his basic premise was like, oh yeah, vote for Romney. You know, the the zombie apocalypse will come faster and we'll be ready to go. So yeah, you know, you want the zombie apocalypse, vote vote for Romney. Yeah, it, it was very well done. And and but I really thought it was a re- a really good um, kind of play off of the sort of negative advertisement that, that celebrities had been doing for Romney, like against Obama. I think it was meant to kind of play off of that Chuck Norris. Like, oh, gosh. Wasn't that just so silly? Him and his wife. So if you haven't seen this, Chuck Norris and his wife, like, do this public advertisement for Romney against Obama, and they state that, seriously, you know, the the the, the Joss Whedon thing is done in a humorous, you know, ironic way, right? And, and it's meant to be a parody of this, but... Chuck Norris and his wife are looking at the camera, and and with all sincerity, they're, they're, they tell us that a vote for Obama, uh, Obama is a, uh, a will bring about a thousand years of darkness. And you're just sitting there going, "Whoa, wait a minute, what?" Yeah, a, a th- like I can only think of one historical figure that it, that you could actually like make that claim of, right? And that would, of course, be Hitler. And even then, wasn't a thousand years of darkness. Uh, give it like you know thirty or something. <laughs> well, yeah, and it's it's apparently a reference to the Antichrist is what uh, is is I, what people I, have been saying. But, I know. Yeah. But, oh, I, I I agree, and it makes me sad because of all the Chuck Norris memes. I know, and so uh, it, it's obvious that he was doing that as sort of a parody of the the Chuck Norris uh, thing, but uh, it, it was just really funny. We'll, we'll have to put a link up in the comments or something like that oh. for these. Yeah, I thought the other thing that I saw Josh Whedon on recently was they had the. Uh, the brown coat 10 year reunion on the science channel. I watched day. that too. That was pretty yeah. cool. That was pretty neat. And he found out some, uh, some ideas that didn't get made. Some of them, that's probably a good thing. And, but it was really neat to see the cast again and to see it all together and talking and stuff. It was pretty awesome. And you really, you really get the sense that like Nathan Fillion would drop whatever he's doing to play that character, like at, at the drop of a hat. Yeah. Yeah. It, it was, it was pretty excellent. Um, yeah. I, it's, it's replaying on the science channel. So definitely check it out if you haven't seen it yet. Of course, you know the really big news. What's the really big news? They're making a, a new Boy Meets World series. How's that the really big news? I thought the it's, Star it's, Wars was the. It's, re- it's it's not the really big news, I know. but it's true. I know. Y- yay! <laughs> another Boy Meets World. I yeah. I would be excited if they were doing another Doogie Howser. Also, they're making a sequel to Twins, and I thought that was a joke, but apparently it's not. Yeah, 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 and you know who's it's 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 twins, but there's going to be a third brother. The triplets. Yes, yeah, I just you, saw that. Do you know who's going to be the third brother? Yes. Go ahead and tell us. Eddie Murphy. Yeah. So it'll be Arnold Schwarzenegger, Danny DeVito, and Eddie Murphy. <sighs> yes. You know the that's... first one, it was funny because he's big and muscled, and the other one's short and chubby, and now this one, he, he's black. So that's you know. 
Yeah. funnier. I'm trying to remember the last Eddie Murphy movie that I actually liked, and I'm having a really hard time. Well, I think, like, it happens with a lot of comedians when they have a family. He, he They realize, like, ooh, my comedy's a little, you know, risque. And he, because when you, like, watch, like, Eddie Murphy Raw, you know, mm-hmm. when, when and he is funny, right? Yes. He's got the purple leather outfit on, and he's, you know, he, he's kind of doing sort of like a George Carlin or, or Dennis Leary type thing, right? You know, just real kind of um, raw with the humor and stuff like that. But as soon as he had kids, that's when he started doing the Disney movies, and he started doing the, you know, the the cutback, you know, the Haunted Mansion, and the was that last one he did where he played like a whole bunch of people, like aliens, like in a robot body and stuff like that. I did not see that. Apparently, he's doing another Beverly Hills Cop. For television or something like that, which is kind of a strange thing, but uh, yeah, we'll see. Uh, there was, yeah, eh, I am not looking forward to this movie if it isn't playing. <laughs> so yeah, um, let's see. Oh, G4 is getting canceled. Did you see that? Or like the television station is going away. Yep, I saw that. It's unfortunate. But it, the writing's been on the wall for a while now, because I don't think they've been doing fairly well with the, the G4 channel. I mean, ever since, you know, and they have, uh, so they're canceling, of course, Stack of the Show and X-Play. G4's done. And apparently they're replacing it with a men's interest channel along the lines of GQ or Esquire, which it, sounds horrible. It does. Me. It sounds, it sounds absolutely boring. So yeah, I mean, we, I, I was, you know, not particularly thrilled when they merged Tech TV and G4 in the first place. And, you know, and G4, you know, I don't watch a lot of television. So, of course, this is entirely my fault that they're canceling this. But, no, often in the background, I'll have uh, I'll have G4, you know, on for American or Japanese Ninja Warrior and Attack of the Show or whatever. Um, but, no, I don't know. A, a lot of that news, of course, you can just get online now. You can watch uh, – you've got uh, Geek and Sundry and you've got The Nerdist and you've got uh, – all these other things that you can find online that are that do a much better job than the you know Siffy and uh, and G4 do. So I don't know. I mean, I like having a geek channel, mm-hmm. right? Um, but I think they sometimes focus on the wrong things. Um, getting you know you know, sexy girls to kind of talk about games who maybe don't always know what they're talking about and stuff like that. And, I mean, I, I want them to, to, you know, talk more about, you know, so not just console games, but PC games, get into some hardware chat, you know, talk about... I, I just feel like they they were, were didn't really know what they were doing in some of their, their bits and stuff. I mean, to be fair, I think I think most of most of the girls they had on did know a lot of what they were talking about on on stuff like Attack of the Show. Now, they, I think they were they were on Attack of the Kiki. On Attack of the Show, I, I, I will give you credit for that one. I think on Attack of the Show they did a decent job. I think when they went outside of the Attack of the Show for some of their other like special you know um, uh, scenes on or what have you, I, I think that's where it got a little questionable. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It would be nice. I mean, you've seen this move away from television. You know, sci-fi, of course, became now the Siffy channel and Tech TV G4 became G4 and now that's going away. So it is weird, especially with, with this stuff so popular that they can't figure out a way to, um, make it at least a tiny bit profitable on television. And I don't know if that's because it's everywhere, right? You see, you can see stuff on different channels all over that or, and on the internet and whatever, or if they just haven't figured it out, um, I think they've made some very questionable decisions in 
how they've done things as well. So I, I don't know. It is, it is kind of sad to see that kind of representation, uh, of geek culture going away, but we'll see what happens and what it gets replaced with. And is it all is it just, is it just done? I don't, I don't know. So, uh, yeah. Um, so last time, has it been that long? So last time you were looking for a, uh, a game system for your future game. So yes, um, I have started up a online my online campaign. So some of the things I like to do to kind of flush out some of the mechanics before I go with the live sessions, I'll, I'll do the play by post uh, campaign, um, kind of work out the kinks a little bit because you know play by post runs slower, so you have time to think about it and time to craft responses or come up with kind of on the fly um, rules adjudications and stuff like that. So I really like the play by post model as like if you're running something you've never run before to to kind of work stuff out. Uh, and in the last, uh, in our last uh, episode, we talked about how I was kind of soul searching for a system to use for the campaign. And luckily enough, just as I was starting to run up, you know, get the uh, play by post campaign ready to go, uh, was it, um, Green Ronin? Yep. Yeah, Green Ronin released the Supernatural Handbook for Mutants and Masterminds 3.0, which, has everything I'm looking for. It has Cthulian themes. It has templates for the various monster types. It still needs some tweaking and stuff like that, but also has like um, rules modifications for you know humanity and stuff. So we're I'm dumping uh, hero points, right? So rather than use uh, hero points, we're going to have humanity points. And if you use them and, and you use too many, you lose your humanity and stuff happens. So yeah, it, it came out exactly when I needed it. You know, someone answered the call. Mm-hmm. So I've I've started up the the uh, the I've started up the campaign, and my players went with an interesting twist on it. They're playing sort of uh, ever in order to keep you know one of the hardest things in a campaign is is uh, group cohesion, right? Why is everyone together and working together? And the nice thing was the players kind of took care of that on themselves. Usually the GM kind of has to come up with some loosey goosey reason, but the G, uh, the players decided they were going to take care of themselves. They made themselves a rock and roll band, sort of like Kiss, <laughs> nice or something like that. But yeah. instead of you know being like Kiss, they 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 come out as monsters. So the the audience thinks that you know they're they're this monster band when in fact they really are monsters, right? So sort of are they Gore? 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 The band Gore with the? No, 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 no. <laughs> um, they they named themselves to serve man. Oh, nice. As a sort of, you know, playoff of, you know, they, they used to, to, you know, dominate humans and now they try to help them by defeating the elder ones. It was, it was a really good play on words and stuff. So they, we got, um, the, the interesting thing is we got two zombies, a vampire, swamp thing, a werewolf, and then some guy just asked to join who wants to be a man haunted by sort of a ghostly hound, aka like hounds of the Baskervilles, but real instead of a trickery like in the book. Mm-hmm. And that he. Oh, his, thanks for thanks for spoiling that, BJ. Come on. Oh yeah, I mean it's. <laughs> I, I should have given it spoiler tags. I'm sorry. <laughs> but and uh, and and rather than be hounded it because it's like some family curse that he has, but he's learned to control the hound. So he controls this like supernatural, ghostly, and substantial hand. So it's a really interesting group, and so far it's been going pretty well. And uh, yeah, I think uh, after playing it a bit longer and kind of working out some more of the kinks, it'll be ready to go live with you guys. Yeah, it sounds like it's going to be fun. Uh, for people interested in the Supernatural Handbook, you can buy it at GreenRonin.com. It is about thirty bucks if you pur- if you pre-order it because the print book isn't out yet. You can purchase the PDF for five dollars when you check out, which, which is what I did. Right, same here. So yeah, it look it's a great book. I, I was really impressed with it. So <clears throat> yeah, it looks like it's going to be a fun campaign. 
Yep, yep. I got to. I just got to figure out like. I know people have been telling me, because I'm having trouble with the War of the Burning Sky campaign. This, this second module is just like defeating my soul. It's, it's, I hate to speak ill of, of writers and stuff like that, but the second module is just very poorly written. And I'm having trouble just, you know, making everything work in it and stuff. So, um, my, my, my enthusiasm for the War of the Burning Sky has kind of been waning a little bit. And so I'm trying to figure out, like, should we just dump that and move on to this campaign? I, I hate, sh- you know, shifting campaigns like, you know, midstream like that on you guys, though. Yeah, I mean, we can ask the group and see what uh, what, what people want to do. I'm okay either way. Okay. I, I, I really like my D&D character, but this could, this would also be a lot of fun. So it's been such a long time since we played because of all of these things going on and everyone having to go out of town and some Look, lucky people get to go to Disney World. <sighs> it looks like we're not going to get to play again until like in December. Isn't that that's, crazy? Yeah, yeah. It's, and we haven't played since mid early October. So yeah, that's 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 a long time to be on hiatus for a game. So yeah, we'll see what's happening. Uh, let's see. I did go and see Sinister, which is something that I had mentioned uh, prior to the last uh, podcast that I was going to go do, or at the last podcast that I was going to do. It was interesting. Have you seen it? No, I have not seen Sinister. It is, uh, in a lot of ways, it is dark and disturbing. Uh, there's a lot of, uh, dip- it's a combination of, there, there is, there is found footage in the film. So, and, and that found footage that they find and the guy ke- and Ethan Hawke, uh, keeps on watching is very disturbing. So, um, it's basically the premise is there's a, a kind of, he's a washed up, uh, True crime writer is played by, by Ethan Hawke. Uh, moves he moves his family uh, from place to place, you know, writing about these crimes that have happened. And this this and he's this is like one of his last ditch efforts because you know he had his 15 minutes of fame 10 years ago. His stuff since then hasn't been very good. He's not very popular anymore. And he's like, okay, this is what I'm gonna do. So he moves into this house because uh, uh, some horrific things happened there happened in, in the area. Doesn't tell his family that that is actually the house where the people you know died. And uh, and while he's there, he finds a, a series of Super 8 footage, and each one of them has a label like, uh, you know, barbecue, swimming, something like that, and and a different year on it. And each one of them depicts a family either committing suicide or being horribly murdered. And that is, it is really, it is actually really disturbing to watch. Um, and then, of course, at some point, supernatural things start happening. Uh, and he finally, maybe, and then he realizes maybe, you know, lying, both lying to my family and moving to this house were not the best ideas. So, um, it's a dark movie. It is not, I found it, I think, more disturbing than scary. It has, I think it has some interesting premises. I kind of liked, I mean, I shouldn't say, I shouldn't say that. I, I liked it. I thought it was, I thought it was interesting. Uh, and I thought it was, it was, it was, it was a interesting take on a, on a, on a particular type of monster. So I, I enjoyed the film. Holly did not at all. She did not, she didn't think it was at the least bit compelling as a scary movie. So she, she was not a big fan of it and she thought it was kind of, uh, dumb in, in a lot of ways. But, uh, I, I enjoyed it. Um, I think it's worth, definitely worth checking out from like Redbox or whatever. Eh, not so certain that you have to go see it at the movies. I don't think the, the shared experience, uh, with other people is that important in it. Uh, and in fact, in some ways it could be more disturbing watching it at home. Uh, but it, it's, I'd say, you know, it's a rental. I kind of figured. I kind of figured. Yeah. yeah. I, I, it didn't. I mean, it it looked scary, right? But scary in the sense of 
using the typical kind of scary mechanics of silence for a while, then, oh, God, something happens, right? You know, it's, it's a- There is some of that. Uh, there's definitely some of that. Um, although a lot of times those are like fake-outs. It's not actually something that should be scary or that should be as, as – so, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, another thing I mentioned last time was that chibi, chibi miniatures thing that was getting kickstarted. That was completely based on the D and D cartoon. If you recall me mentioning that, I'm like, wow, you know what's going to happen when uh, Watsi finds out? So Watsi did find out, and actually did contact them, but only asked them to change two things, and they and they said they were fine with it otherwise. So they didn't, and actually they didn't have to change the the dungeon master from the Dungeons and Dragons cartoon, or even the dungeon the uh, Dungeons and Dragons characters. The two things they asked them to change were basically what they called the Dusk Elf, which was Drizzt, and the Master Mage, which was Elminster. They asked them to change those, and they did. Then they redesigned the minis, and that was it. So actually, good for Hasbro. They didn't. Uh, they didn't go, or good for Watsi. They didn't go overboard on that. All right, all right. We we I know we were concerned that they were going to flip out a little bit, and you know uh, when we've been talking about protecting IP rights, you know, throughout this this series, you know, Wizard of the Coast has been a bit more. Um, Punishing, I guess, is the word, or I don't know how you want to put it, protective of their IP since the Pathfinder fiasco, so we, there was concern. So speaking of which, I've, I have a very interesting and, and you know kind of sad situation, not for me, but more for, more for some other folks than for me. Um, so often, of course, as, as as probably evident, I'm heavily involved in, in copyright-related issues, um, you know, professionally and academically. And um, often, though, it, it is from the perspective of the overreaching copyright law or copyright law that affects people negatively in the sense that um, it prohibits actions that should be legal or that are important, like culturally or whatever, and that because of copyright law, those actions cannot be underdone. Stuff like orphan works, uh, access to materials that is that is getting that is being destroyed, uh, old film stuff that we can't restore because of unclear copyright status. Stuff like that. Um, Interestingly, so of course, you know, I worked on both the uh, Midgard bestiary for Pathfinder and on the Midgard campaign setting, um, and I found pirated copies of those online. Uh, it was bound to happen eventually. Yeah, and I, I knew that was that was that was going to happen. Uh, but this is, but it doesn't, you know, it does. While it doesn't affect me, it does affect the people that that actually do make money from this, and that is that small press, global press. So I'm, I have this. I'm in an interest. I'm going to help them. Um, address this issue because, of course, since I'm, I'm familiar with the Digital Millennium Copyright Act and all of the stuff that you need to do in order to kind of get this stuff removed, um, but it, it is it is interesting to be on this on this particular uh, um, actually directly involved with some of these actions in ways that I hadn't been before. So that's I, I think it's been a very interesting learning experience for me in, from that context because it's really um, it, it, it's always something like I always try to consider the perspective of of the author the creator who is affected by this in a lot of ways but this is really interesting because i you know i, I know the guy i talked to the guy and i know that there are the people involved so um yeah i'm going to help them take some of that down uh and and i'll talk about how that process goes on another on another uh episode one of the things i want to ask you about is this whole uh thing that was going up to the supreme court regarding the ability to resell items that were made overseas Yes, that have, is a big deal. Have you, so I'm, I'm assuming you've heard of this, right? Yes. And, and so I tried to research into it. So apparently there's a first seller right for domestic items that protects you to be able to resell stuff that you've bought yourself. So, um, so 
copyright law in the United States is found under Title 17. It's Title 17 USC. And one section of it, Section 109, uh, is uh, certain limitations on, on rights for, uh, based on selling. And it, it, what it's called the first sale doctrine. First sale doctrine. There we go. So basically what this means in general is that when you purchase something, when you purchase a DVD, when you purchase a book, when you purchase, you know, whatever, um, as long as it, it, you can you can do things with that to with that that particular instance of that material without permission from the copyright holder. For example, if I am a library, I can lend out books and I don't have to pay the copyright holder for lending out these books. If I'm a rental place, I can rent these things to other people. Uh, if I buy it as a present for someone, I can give it to someone else, right? I can, or you know, if I want to, I can destroy the book or whatever, right? It doesn't give me any copyrights over the book in the traditional sense. Like I don't own the material, the content of the book, but I own this book and I can do, I can generally do what I want with it. And that's how come we have used bookstores, libraries, uh, used game stores, eBay, right? Selling stuff on eBay. All of that is based on the doctrine of first sale. So to kind of dumb that down a little bit, what that really means is that if you get a DVD, you're not allowed to rip the content off the DVD and sell that, but you are allowed to sell that DVD in and of itself. Correct. Right. So, yeah, and, and that's exactly is in line with what I researched, right? But what they're talking about here in this case, and, and let me kind of back up to explain why this has become a big deal. Uh, it came up because this uh, book company was selling books in a, uh, in the States for a pretty exorbitant price, right? And they were produced overseas. Right. So in in this is well known. Textbooks in the United States are incredibly expensive. Yes. Incredibly. You know, you know, I'm as a as a college student, you can spend, you know, not just tens, hundreds of dollars on your textbooks for a single class. Right. And that is that is largely because of the monopoly that publishers might have on textbooks. Right. So and, and, is, mm-hmm, go ahead. The, and from what I read up, the reason they're so expensive is because in America we can afford to pay more for it. Right. Not not that it costs more to ship it over here or that it costs a lot to print the books, but it's purely, like you said, a monopoly thing. There, it's it's tightened up by this group that controls it, and because Americans are, or within the regions that they're selling them, the people there can afford to pay more for that, so they charge more, right? Yes, although you know whether or not it is affordable is, of course, one of the matters of debate. <clears throat> and so, where this came to a headway is that some some guy. Found spots overseas, I forget which country it was, but he found where these books were sold for a lot cheaper, so he bought them over there and had them shipped over to America and then undercutted the actual, you know, companies that were selling the first edition copies here in the States, right? Yes. And so they didn't like that and and they, you know, filed a complaint with the courts and it's gone all the way up to the big boys. Right. And that's partly because there is actually there's a split. Uh there there's um there's both a split between the lower court and the appeals court in this case, so it's gone up to the Supreme Court. But there's also uh, a, a, a case that happened just a couple of years ago, which first started this particular issue. Um, and this was a case involving Costco, where they were found liable for infringement because they sold watches, right? But and the thing is, selling watches and stuff isn't isn't necessarily a copyright thing. But the watches had logos on them. And so Omega, the watchmaker company, said, by selling that, you're infringing on our copyright because it has our logos on it. So, um, so what they said in, in, uh, in, in the Supreme Court case, it was actually, it was a 4-4 decision. So, uh, the, the, because, uh, Judge Kagan recused herself from the case because of her role in, in it prior to her becoming a Supreme Court justice. 
So there's a lot of uncertainty about the role of the first sale doctrine when it applies to foreign works. And that's hopefully what this current case, which is Kurt saying, uh, what John Wiley and Sons are Kurt saying, that's hopefully what that will uh, kind of help to resolve. The implications for this are huge. So let's 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 bring it down to brass tacks because I, I think we might have lost half the audience at this point. They're like sitting there, you know, snoring with a little drool coming out. What this really means is, you have an iPad. You're done with it. You got the iPad version four, and you got the you want to get rid of your iPad version three. If this passes, you can't sell it. Not on eBay. Not to your friends. It would be illegal because the iPad is produced overseas. And it's copyrighted. Well, maybe it's it's that's that's one of the things. It's it's kind of so it's produced overseas, but it's sold here. So does that sale make make it a U.S. item in that particular case? It's that's one of the that's one of the issues. But you know, so say that I'm, and that's one of the things that we need to resolve. Yeah. Uh, but say like I'm a library, right? Right here at UT, we have the Benson Latin American collection. Everything we have from there is from other countries. If this if this case goes the wrong way, are we not going to be able to lend those books out? Lend anymore? those books out? Can we buy import games or import movies? Um, uh, we have a house. The house has you know bits and pieces made in China and stuff like that. Would we have to get permission to if we try to resell our house? Yes. Right. Exactly. Say and that and yes, that's exactly right. And stuff with the iPad. That I see what you're saying now. The materials, the components are made from other countries. Is that going to be affected? In, you know, just because the components are, can we not sell the iPad? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, yeah it's it's a big it's a big deal. Um, and 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 the the further implication of it is, it will incentivize companies to move their factories overseas because they'll have stronger copyright protection if their stuff is produced and, and IP is controlled outside of the United States. Which is one of the questions that the Supreme Court asked, I believe, is because is one of the one of the judges during this case. Yeah, because that's a ridiculous interpretation of the law. Our copyright law should not be encouraging people to move their stuff overseas. Yeah, and, it, and, it, we we shouldn't be giving foreign products like that stronger protection than domestic products. Right. So, you know, so far the questions I think have leaned favorably towards, towards the supporting the doctrine of first sale. Um, the questions the Supreme Court has asked in this case, but of course we're still waiting for a decision on it. Yeah. So, I mean, I, uh, it's, uh, your, your job lends to so much more interesting conversations than my job, unfortunately. <laughs> Well, actually, next we're going to talk about exchange and. Uh, Yay! I'll yeah. cover how to create cross-force transport rules and cross-force availability services. Excellent. Um, no, uh, uh, but it, so much of what we deal with, you know, applies to what you, you know, you're talking about the the copyright protection of Disney and and you know the the protection that you know we've had that conversation about you know Apple. A lot of it comes back to your specialty, so I think it's you know. It's good having you on the podcast. That's what I'm trying to say. Carlos. Right, and that's you know that's not that's not a coincidence that I that I mean one of the reasons that I was it started just you know um, becoming interested in copyright is of course that I was an undergraduate when stuff like Napster came out. Right, I was I was in school when when actually Napster was was released my my very first year of, of college, and somebody that I worked with started their own company and made millions of dollars on file sharing stuff and. You know, so there's, I had it, and then anime started becoming big as I was an undergraduate, and there are huge copyright implications involved with anime. And so that, that actually indirectly, my fandom geekdom kind of led to this interest in the first place. And then as I, you know, got more into it, it, it developed a little a bit more further than that. But 
yeah, no, it's still a huge interest of mine. Even with the RPG stuff, like I mentioned, you know, the Cobalt Press infringement stuff, but also looking at stuff like the open, open game license and how that works and, you know. So yeah, no, it's, it's, it, it touches everything, um, is really what, what it is. And, and, and I think people need to understand that not every, uh, lawsuit is really necessarily about protecting IP. Some of it is just a money grab, right? Right. There, there's this company that's uh, suing Microsoft um, over live tiles, right? I hadn't heard that. Yeah, so someone's like, we came up with live tiles first, and we filed a patent for it, and and they're, they're, I've looked at their patent, and it's yeah, it's a little fuzzy at best, right? But the thing is, is live tile Microsoft has had live tiles out for years now, so they didn't file a lawsuit against Microsoft when the Zune came out, when Xbox, you know, moved to live tiles, or when um, the uh, what's the other one I'm thinking about? Um, there, there was a Zune, the Xbox, and uh, Windows Phone uh, Seven came out with Live Tiles, right? No, they're only doing it when Windows Eight has come out with Live Tiles, right? The the big, you know, right. daddy of it all, right? If there was really a concern, this should this you know complaint should have come up three years ago. Um, so so sometimes it's just you know. I hate to be that guy, but sometimes it is a bit of a money grab. Right. We, we, in general, right, in, in the, this kind of the tiny tech community in particular, these people are known as patent trolls. Yes. Um, although, you know, I've been on panels with patent attorneys before. The, the, the pro patent attorneys in particular call them non-practicing patent holders. But that's exactly the same thing. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, yeah, no, that's definitely another, that's that. We can, we can talk about that some if we want to talk about tech sometime too. Uh, it's a big deal right now. Yeah, I mean, and I think that'd be a good conversation for us. Both of us are, are heavily ingrained in the tech industry to, to various degrees, so there's, there's a lot of meat on that bone. I don't know how interesting it'll be for anyone but us. Right. Yeah. I mean, people love to hear about Guild Wars and freaking, you know, modern warfare and stuff like that, but all of a sudden we get into patent conversations and I can just hear the snoring from the other room. <laughs> all right. Well, let's, uh, let's move on then. All right. Um, yes. I was going to mention uh, just a couple of news. Paizo dropped its uh, Mythic Adventures playtest yesterday. So uh, they're coming out with a set of what they call Mythic Rules, which are kind of similar to Epic Rules, except they can be applied to any really character level type thing. Uh, I've only skimmed through them, but they seem kind of interesting. They're they're basically high power, you know, dealing with deities, dealing with high abilities and stuff like that. But they are, because it is the Paizo playtest, they are... Freely available. You just have to go up to Paizo. You can create an account on Paizo.com and you can download them. Worth checking out. You can give feedback if, if you want to. The other thing is that Cobalt Press occasionally does contests for, um, for different, like creating monster contests or creating item contests, creating artifact contests. And right now they're having, uh, the Valhalla Calling Contest, which is creating an adventure. Uh, so if you are an aspiring game designer and think that you could, uh, do it, it's an open submission. Uh, you can go to koboldquarterly.com and check out the rules there and, you know, submit your, your, uh, your, your adventure idea. See, see if it gets any traction. I gotta submit something now. I you got, should. I got tons of adventure ideas. Yep. Yeah. Just, just go check on, check on the rules, the rules there. I think, uh, it's gotta be Pathfinder AGE. I, I could be wrong though. It might be, I, they might accept other systems. Um, AGE being Ronin's, uh, new system. Did, uh, and, uh, 
Do they want a, an adventure like within a specific world set, or can it be like a different can be, world? Can be, can be. It's pretty open. I think the rules are, are pretty open to anything, uh, and it's just, it's just a pitch, right? You don't have to write the whole adventure. You just pitch them the adventure. You have like a four hundred word limit, and if they find your pitch compelling, you know, I, I, at some point there's going to be it's going to be. Let's see. The judges are Wolfgang Bauer, Brandon Hodge, Wade Rocket, and someone else, uh, but. It's it's yeah so they'll they'll be judging them and uh, you know it's a good way to get your your name out there. Um, I gotta I gotta pitch them my Arcanum thing. You you totally should. I, so, I'm still I'm still writing that world and I, I got that idea so I got. Oh Ben McFarland is the other one so that's cool. Yeah. So yeah. I, good times good times I like it when they encourage the community because I think it only gets stronger when you get the community involved. Yes. Right. I, I mean. Take a look at Valve. I think Valve has done so well because they got so ingrained with their community. I, yeah, I, I, I agree. They've done they've done a great job for that. Um, wow, we have already gone 50 minutes, and that's kind of disturbing. Um, so <laughs> would you like to talk about your big trip right after you know, right around Halloween time, or your big trip to Austin? You know, just a few miles south. We uh, we went to Comic Con, and I've already tweeted some pictures from Comic Con. Uh, there was a lot of great people there. Got to meet Dean Kane, Lou Ferrigno, Patrick Stewart, uh, Michael Dorn, Will Wheaton was there, Gates McFadden, uh, Mira Siris, uh, LeVar Burton, Brett uh, Spiner. The, uh, let's see, Eliza Dushku was scheduled to be there, but she didn't show up, at least from what I could see. And the, uh, a couple of the Walking Dead boys were there. And, Oddly enough, the situation was scheduled, and and I didn't see him there for like the most of it. And then as we were coming back, we kind of bumped into him coming back from uh, from lunch. But uh, yeah, I, I think for for you know because they've been trying to do this, get this kind of like roaming Comic Con thing going on as they you know go travel to different cities, mm-hmm. rather than just be like is it San, it's the um, San Diego Comic Con is the big one or. I'm not entirely sure where it is. I know it's yeah. I think it's West Coast, but yeah. yeah. So they're trying to get it more centralized and and you know closer to people where you know because not everyone could travel and and get like hotel accommodations. So this is like they they've had it in Austin a couple of years, but I think this is the biggest one that they've had so far. Right, with especially with the giant uh, Star Trek uh, reunion, basically. Yeah, and and they had all the Star Trek people there, and let me tell you. Um, you know, because I was kind of going around trying to take pictures for uh, the, the the site and stuff like that. Anytime you got near the Star Trek floor, though, like they had people there almost ready to tackle you. Like, don't take pictures of the Star Trek people, right? <laughs> um, and and I completely get it because you know the the pictures there cost a lot of money. Our, uh, Scott, who's been on our uh, podcast before, paid ninety bucks to get a picture with uh, uh, him and his wife and Patrick Stewart, and it's a good picture. But have you seen it? I haven't actually seen it. No, you should totally post that somewhere. So I'll, I'll, I'll send it to you again. But it kind of comes across as this like little awkward picture of you know him with like Grandpa Stewart or something like that. And it's, yeah, I, I saw another friend's picture with Patrick Stewart. Yeah, he's he's looking a bit old now. <laughs> and but it was it was it was funny. And and I got a really good picture with um, Dean Kane. Did you see that one? I did see that. And so basically, uh, my wife loves, uh, the, the Superman series that he was in and, you know, thinks he's really sexy and stuff. So I got a picture with him, with myself and Dean Kane and we're all kind of pointing to each other. And, and I had Dean Kane write, Beck, pick one. 
and then he put like little uh, balloons around him and said, "Me, please, me, please." Right? Yeah, he he found the idea really funny because most people just want him to sign like Dean Kang, you know, no two signature because they you know gonna sell it on eBay or something like that. So he found it really amusing how um, personalized it was. So he thought it was really cool. Uh, the the only thing was. I kind of ruined it a little bit for Beck because I told her that, you know, Dean Cain's a Republican. Ah. And that completely ruined it for her, right? I still think, because, you know, I'm, I'm not that ingrained with the, the political scene, right? You know, Democrat, Republican, I don't care. So I still think it was cool. But, you know, as soon as she found out he was Republican, she's like, oh. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, hey, that's that. So who did she pick then? <laughs> she picked me. Yeah, well, there you go. So. so it was, um, <laughs> overall, I thought it was a really good um, event. I thought it it worked out really well. Um, you know, it, it could have gone a little smoother in some places. You know, the the panels and stuff like that. But like I said, this is the the biggest one they've done thus far, and I think they can only get better. Right. Yeah, um, it seemed like a lot of fun. We actually thought about going, uh, Holly and I, but because it's it's our uh, our anniversary weekend, and of course our anniversary being on Halloween, uh, but we ended up going to Galveston instead. So uh, I'll talk about that in a little bit. But no, what what was your favorite bit about Comic Con? Um, the artist floor was really good. They had a lot of good artists there with um, you know, panels up for their stuff, and so walking the artist floor and seeing all the various you know artists for different comics and stuff like that. I, I, I must have walked that floor like 20 times. I was I was really tired by the time I was done, but it, it was very interesting. How was traffic? <laughs> traffic wasn't that bad, actually. We That's got good. we got a fairly decent parking spot that was just about a block away. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, so we didn't have to walk that much, and uh, finding lunch was a little difficult. Right. And so for people who don't know, it was at the Austin Convention Center, which is in downtown Austin. Um, so yeah, I was worried about, about traffic and crowded and stuff like that. Um, of course, right now Austin is freaking out over, uh, Formula One, which is their first race is starting tomorrow. But, uh, yeah, I, that, so com- that's cool. That's cool. I'm glad that, that at least the traffic part wasn't so bad. <laughs> yeah. The, from what I understand, downtown is just a mess with, um, yeah. The, yeah, they're they're shutting down parts of downtown tomorrow, the streets, and they're shutting down some schools in East Austin. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I didn't, you know, t- to be honest, this is how out of touch I am. I didn't even know we were that far along with with F one. I thought that it was. I thought we still had a, a ways to go before the it got finished. No, and there's going to be twelve hundred dollar helicopter rides one way. Uh, they're expecting some. Well, not I shouldn't say they're expecting. There are some very, very, very wealthy people coming to this thing, and it's kind of terrifying everyone because Austin's a very kind of laid back, keep Austin weird, you know, small town vibe kind of place. And there's a, a real big uh, cultural clash uh, between the F1 crowd and, and the Austin crowd. So yeah, it's going to be interesting. I don't know how you can still like have that quote unquote small town vibe when like if you count all the various um, residential areas, we're like almost what two million people. Oh yeah, no, no, totally. And we live—I mean, heck—we live in Maynard, right? So, which is actually, uh, you know, 13 miles east of Austin. So, and you live, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. I—I I don't understand how they can still consider like Austin small town, right? It's—it's it's weird. Yeah, yeah, it's Austin. <laughs> so, uh, any other Comic Con notes? Um, 
I I just hope they do uh, another uh, great Comic Con next year. Beck was um, my my wife was very sad because she had to work, she couldn't get off for it, and she um, but I did get her a bunch of signatures, so I did get her the Dean Kane signature, I got her the Patrick Stewart, and they all signed two Beck from you know blah blah blah. Yeah, so Patrick Stewart, Michael Dorn, and I had to kind of. Um, choose my poison on that one because the lines are pretty long for everyone mm-hmm. so uh, I couldn't get her because I wanted to get her uh, a Brett Spiner and a, La- a LeVar Burton also but you know they had panels they had to go to and standing in the Patrick the Patrick Stewart line was freaking huge yeah I imagine and so I, I kind of needed to because I still wanted time to walk the floor and see all the sights and stuff like that so I really had to so tell me you didn't try hard enough no, I, I I need to I need to try harder next time. No, next time she she needs to come with me, and so right. she can stand in the lines. And I already know how that's going to go. She's going to stand in the lines, and then she's going to make me do it because she wants to. <laughs> she's getting tired, so I already know how this conversation is going to go. Excellent. So, so yeah, um, like I mentioned, we went to Galveston. Have you have you have you had a chance to visit Galveston? No, I haven't had a chance to visit Galveston. So it's an interesting, it's an interesting city, right? It's an island city. It's an island just uh, southeast of Houston. It's, it's considered part of the uh, Greater Houston metropolitan area. It's, it's, it's you know got a relatively, relatively small population of close to fifty thousand. And um, at one point in time, it was a really, really wealthy town. Actually, around the turn of the last century, um, it was actually in competition with Houston as to which one was going to be the giant. Uh, the giant port city or the giant city of, of, of the Gulf Coast and was doing really well. Then it got hit by a humongous hurricane in, in, uh, in 1900. One of the, it is still the single largest natural disaster to have ever affected the United States. Um, somewhere between six and 12,000 people were killed. Holy and crap. there's, yeah, there's a lot of, there's, and if you go to Galveston, you still, like it is very much a part of the character of Galveston, you know. Certain, certainly, if you do the touristy stuff, but just any, a lot of places where you go are affected by that. Whoa, uh, whoa! So how long ago was this thing? This was 1900. So this is a, a hurricane that was 100 years ago, and they're still like affected by it. It's it's such a part of the like the the things that they did after the hurricane and during the hurricane are like a lot of their tourism is somehow is, is partly based around some of that stuff. But for example. They raised the grade of the entire island after that hurricane. One of the, you know, a massive, massive engineering project. Uh, they, they increased everything on the island, raised all the buildings, uh, and, and it, they, they did everything. It, it, it was uh, pretty incredible. And so, and there's there are buildings there, there are homes there that were around during the hurricane. Uh, you know, much of much of the homes and stuff were destroyed. Uh, and the stuff that's that's remaining is pretty amazing. I think the I'm gonna I'm gonna do a, a bigger write up about this about our trip to Galveston on the blog with some pictures. But like the most beautiful house that that I have ever seen is there at in Galveston. It's called the Bishop's Palace, and you can Google it and learn about it. It's an amazing Victorian home, uh, which which was uh, created in the 1800s. It's one of the uh, 14 exemplars of Victorian architecture uh, by the Library of Congress in the U.S. And it's it's astonishing, both inside and outside. It's it's very 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 cool. And since it was the Halloween weekend, we went on all these little Halloween tours, right? We went to the cemetery tour and the Bishop's Palace night tour and the Manor home tour. So it was it was fun. It was a lot of fun. You know, Holly and I are. Uh, 
you know, deep, deeply skeptics, you know, we're skeptics, we identify as skeptics in, in the, you know, not in the crazy denying global warming sense, but in the uh, classical, you know, skeptic society, skeptic magazine sense. And we love Halloween. I mean, we love scary things and ghost stories and whatever. Of course, we don't really believe them, but they're so much fun. Um, and this was really interesting. This was a really, really cool, you know, little trip to Galveston. We got to get a hotel on the beach. We got to go to all these really cool historic places. And, you know, it was, it was neat. It, it, we had a whole lot of fun. Uh, lots of ghost stories and stuff. And like I said, I'll put up pictures and, and write them out, uh, for the blog at some point. Um, yeah, so it was, it was very, very, very neat. And that sounds like a lot of fun. Good little, um, vacation mostly or? or yeah, all? it was total, okay. total vacation. Total okay. vacation. It was just, it was what we did for our anniversary this year. Cool. Uh, so yeah, a lot, a lot of fun. So since it's our Halloween episode, um, I wanted to mention a couple of my of movies I think people should see. Um, and I know I didn't get to prep you with this with this particular question, but I don't know if there's anything that you wanted to, to mention. Like, do you have any favorite Halloween-type things? You know, to be honest, I'm not, like, into, like, horror movies that much. I think, like, Walking Dead and the zombie thing are the most, like, you know, really, like, uh, Halloween-ish type things we do. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that we always do, uh, Beck loves carving a pumpkin. You know, they don't do that over in Australia. They don't really celebrate Halloween, so she gets a lot of fun out of carving the pumpkin. But she always makes me gut it because she hates gutting it. It's, you know, she finds it nasty and disgusting, so I always have to gut it so then she can carve it. That is fun. Yeah, you, usually we go and like go really nuts with decorating our house, but... Uh, not, not, we didn't this year because, you know, we didn't have our, our, our normal Halloween party and, uh, cause we went on vacation and stuff instead. So, uh, we didn't go quite, quite as, uh, as, as, you know, we've done some pretty amazing things in the past. And why we, I mean, Holly has done some really amazing things in the past, but, uh, uh, maybe next year. Next year will be our 10 year anniversary. So we should probably do something cool. Um, so I will mention a couple of movies. Actually, I'll mention three movies that I, that I really like. Uh, uh, one of them is, a bit harder to find than others. So the first one, one of my favorite movies of all time, is the 1963 black and white film called The Haunting, uh, directed and produced by Robert Wise and based on another favorite of mine, uh, Shirley Jackson's The Haunting of Hill House, which is a, a novella which I, I find uh, uh, really fun. It's uh, largely a psychological film, and basically it, it follows the – and this is really the first time you see this, which has now become almost a trope – the investigation of a haunted house by a parapsychologist and a group of people who were recruited for this particular study. And uh, strange things start happening during the night, and the uh, the point-of-view character, Eleanor – uh, seems to, like things seem to be happening around her, or directed towards her specifically, and you can't really tell, you know, is she, is, are things actually happening, or is it all in her head? Um, and it's, it's just a great movie. I love it. It has some really, really great special effects that are used still today, like very subtle, very, very, very subtle things, and I, I, I think it's brilliant. Uh, one of my favorite movies of all time, 1963 version of The Haunting. This was remade in 1999. Uh, directed by Jan DeBont and starring Liam Neeson, Catherine Data Jones, Owen Wilson, and Lily Taylor, and was just horrible. The remake is, ugh. if you've seen the remake, and because of you've seen, uh, you know, I would, I would imagine you might not want to see the original, but please do not judge the original on the remake. Definitely give it a, definitely give it a shot. Uh, it is, it, the, the 1963 version is far, far, far superior to the 99 version. Have you seen that movie? No, I haven't. Yeah, don't. 
don't you don't you don't need to. <laughs> I mean, it's 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 over the top. They they do the thing where you know the first one is largely psychological and 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 stuff. They do exactly the opposite with this. It's all really obvious special effects and you know you see ghosts and of course like you know they did a scary movie. You know that movie took took this on like tried to parody it. It's just awful. Uh, which has saddened me so much because I love the original haunting so much. Uh, but yeah. Um, and other things you might have seen, uh, Stephen King made a script based on the haunting, which eventually became, um, Rose Red, which was the 2002 television miniseries. It's, it's kind of related, but it's also, it, it, and it's better than I think the movie, The Haunting, but it's still not as good as the original. Definitely see that. Uh, the next one I wanted to mention was something you could find on Netflix. And this is one of the ones that is, uh, seems like it wouldn't work, and there's a, and you know, we'll watch a lot of stuff on Netflix, and by we, I mean me, that's not, that I expect to not be very good. Um, and this was one of them, and I was actually pleasantly surprised by that, and that is, um, The Last Exorcism. And, uh, you know, it has two things going against it right off the bat. One is it's an exorcism movie, and most of those are awful. And one is it's a found footage movie, like, you know, which has also been done to death at this point, right? With, with you know, of course, originally Blair Witch and everything else that's been done that in that found footage kind of subgenre there. Uh, but this one actually was surprisingly fun. Uh, and basically the, the story is they're making a documentary about, uh, about this particular preacher who, who is an exorcist, but it starts off, you know, he's basically admitting that Everything he does is fake, right? Mm-hmm. And 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 he and he always justified it that that you know it's really these people actually do have psychological problems, and by me coming and doing these exorcisms, you know it helps them work out these psychological issues in, in this kind of uh, framework, in this religious framework. And so really, I'm helping people. It's kind of how he justified it to himself. But finally, you know, but he eventually came to to realize that well, people get hurt in this also. And and after someone was like injured or died, I forget, he kind of decided I really shouldn't do this anymore. Uh, so I'm just going to do this one last one for this documentary, and then that's it. And then I'm done. And and I'll you know I'll tell everyone half what's been happening, and and because and and we can go move on with my life from there. And so he, of course, answers this letter from a, this farmer somewhere in rural Louisiana and takes the documentary crew and gets the permission, like, okay, can we film this? And of course, this one is the one that isn't fake. And so it's, uh, it is, uh, it's a fun movie. It, it's, it's better than it should be. And that one's on Netflix and really easy to find. So the one that's hard to find that I mentioned before is a, and I, I might have talked to you about this before. It's a 1992 film from the BBC called Ghost Watch. Have, have I talked to you about this before? It sounds vaguely familiar. So it came out on Halloween of 1992, and basically it was it was shot. It was again. It, this was in 92, so pretty early. Shot in documentary style uh, on the BBC, right? And BBC reporters are performing a live on-air investigation of a house in Greater London where people reported a poltergeist. So this was – this in, one of the reasons this is so interesting is it was really well done. It was a really fun, fun kind of little flick, and it was – and it used people who were actually you know, BBC news reporters, BBC uh, television personalities and stuff like that to do this kind of fun, fun uh, ghost movie. And the, and, and the thing – and they, of course – it was it was a uh, it was an entertainment movie. The thing is, is that if you missed the little bit at the beginning that and weren't paying attention and and said that this was an entertainment movie, it had an entirely a War of the Worlds effect. Mm, okay. So that people who came in later were like thought it was real, and so they completely uh, tied up the BBC phone lines. Uh, there was a huge, huge, huge backlash against it, and this movie was actually. 
uh, banned from the BBC for, uh, for about a decade. Uh, yeah, so it was banned for about a decade after its initial broadcast. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it, and it's really well done. I think, uh, I, it has some really great scenes in it. It's fun. They do things like, uh, so they'll show a clip of the house of these, these girls who are apparently haunted of their, of their room. And then someone calls in and says, I think I saw a figure in, in the back of the room, like just standing in the shadows. And actually, when, when they first showed it, there was actually a figure there that was really hard to see. And then they pull it up again, like, okay, well, we've seen this film a bunch of times. Let's play it again. They play it again, and there's no figure there. And that time, there actually isn't a figure there, right? And so it's it's a fun – they do fun little tricks like that throughout the entire show. Like, they'll put stuff in the background, never draw attention to it, but the audience sees it, right? Maybe maybe the audience sees it. Maybe they don't. So every time you watch it, you might find some of those little things, which are just a lot of fun. It is – it's a lot of fun to watch. It, uh, it It's a great uh, – it's it's a great little fun film itself, and it has this interesting kind of world of the rules phenomenon associated with it. Hard to find. Um, it's it's as far as I know, we we have a copy of it that we got that we imported from from England, um, and I that is pretty much as far as I know the only way to get it right now. It is it is sold on DVD. Uh, they re-released it last year uh, for the first time in a really long time, and uh, yeah, so it's it's uh, it is it's a fun movie. I definitely recommend seeing it. You can probably find it in various places, but uh, yeah. A lot of fun. It, it sounds... How long ago did you say it was made? It was made in 1992. Are people still that gullible? Yes. Oh, my God. I mean, like, if it was released in, I don't know, the 50s or, or something like that, or 40s, I could see people, like, you know, calling in and stuff like that. But 1992? Really? Yep. Really? Yeah. So, so yeah. Yeah, it's 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 terrific. I, I enjoy it, just for, both for its meta story and for its story. Uh, the last thing I wanted to mention is actually not a movie, but my favorite scary video game. Yeah, there's lots. There's there are various video games in like the horror and the survival horror genre, and uh, I've played several of them. Not all of them. I haven't played like Alan Wake. I kind of want to, but I haven't had a chance to uh, because of time. My favorite scary video game of all time is Fatal Frame, and I don't know if you've seen that. That's that's not too not too bad. Yeah. Yeah, I, I like that. So originally it was released as Zero in 2001 in Japan mm-hmm. and released as Fatal Frame in the U.S. in 2002 and then eventually released in the U.K. and the rest of Europe as Project Zero that same year. There's uh, four games in the franchise. Uh, the, fir- the first and third one are – like the third one is a sequel to the first and the second and fourth one are not really directly part of that story. But it, it is fun and it's it's a lot it's 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 creepy and and great if you play it and it's even more creepy and great if you're a fan of Japanese horror because it uses all the Japanese horror tropes. But uh, in, in the first one at least, you play the the main character is a girl who has a special camera called the Camera Obscura, and her brother has gone missing in a reportedly haunted house, uh, and you basically go in there and try to uh, and are trying to figure out what happened to him and find him and see 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 what happens. But, you know, you walk around the house and there's, and it's really creepy. And when you look through your camera, you can see ghosts. And occasionally the ghosts will try to kill you. And you basically fight them off by taking their picture. And it's, it's interesting in a lot of ways. It's, it's this kind of, it's kind of a first person camera shooter, right? Cause your ammunition is basically your film. And you can get different kinds of film that do different things. Uh, but yeah, it, it's a really terrific, really innovative game. It's super atmospheric, super creepy, especially if you play it like at night with the lights out and with the sound, because the sound is just amazing. It was one of my, one of my favorite games, definitely. Fatal Frame. You can still get it pretty cheap on Amazon, eBay, whatever. Fun game. Originally for, uh, well, it was for both the Xbox and for the PlayStation. So. And it does kind of sound like, 
Alan Wake sounds like a, another version of that, right? Because you don't actually have like a weapon in the traditional sense. You got to use your flashlight right. um, to to get rid of the shadow creatures that are chasing you, and it's a lot more cerebral than it is, but just like a normal game and stuff like that. And then they kind of do this. The thing that annoyed me, spoiler alert, I guess, um, the thing that annoyed me about Alan Wake is, is it did get kind of like horror-ish, and, and it was you know scary and tense and stuff like that, but then they started doing the Stephen King story within a story within a story like ah, yeah. thing that really started to kind of piss me off, right? Right. Because it was trying to be clever than it had any right to be. Yeah. The, the when it comes to horror games like uh, games that I gotta that I play that that give me the chills. Um, what God? What's that 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 third person game uh, with the uh, that space game where like shit's uh, chasing you? Um, uh, I actually never played it, but I think I know which one you're talking about. Um, Ah, now my my name is also. Uh, did they make an animated, a little animated movie about yeah, it? Yeah, 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 yeah. They made an animated uh, sequel of it. There's two games out for it. Oh man, I'm gonna. Is kill... it Dead Space? Yes, Dead Space. Okay, yeah, Dead... I never played that. Dead Space is just creepy, and it it gets you, and it's got good pacing, and you know, it's not all about the gotcha moments. There's a lot of good atmosphere to it, and stuff like that. I mean, if we talk about, like, the original games that really creeped me out, you know, the first Resident Evil, of course, right? That, that was a great game, yeah. And, and I know people got annoyed with it because of the odd camera angles, because you could never see, uh, you couldn't always see anything, but it was those camera angles that added to the suspense, right? Because the camera angle would give you, like, sort of a top-down view. Sometimes you could hear shuffling, and you didn't know where it was coming from or, or what it was, and, yeah, it, it was... You know, for for all the flaws that it might have had with the controls and the angles and stuff like that, it was just a, an incredibly tense game and very, you know, gripping. And, and it, there's a reason it's gone on for a bunch of horrible movie sequels and stuff <laughs> like that, uh, because it was such a, just a great game. Right. No, I agree. The first Resident Evil uh, was terrific. But do yourself a favor, favor and play the first Dead Space at least, because it, it is a very tense game. Uh, trying to figure out, you know, what's happened to these people and, and stuff like that, and get yourself out of bad situation. And and there is some, you know, some uh, psychological parts to it and stuff like that. It, it's a good game. Cool. Very very cool. Yeah. So I, I think um, w- when we talk about you know the the Halloween and stuff like that, there's it comes from multiple angles, right? There's you know scary books that you can read, you know anything. Dean Koontz or, or you know um, the uh, Stephen King related you know those are going to be kind of classics and I know uh, Beck has a, a collection of her own that she likes to read um, but then there's also sort of the fantastical type of stuff right and and that's more like um, the Harry Dresden or the uh, the the the, um, the Nightside series you know that's kind of got sort of a I, I guess could could you call it sort of a Halloweenish vibe to them definitely yeah definitely both of those and Nightside in particular <laughs> yeah yeah. And then in the video games, right, you know, there, horror is a genre that people play, right? And so there's that um, that kind of fear is that horror first-person shooter. Um, and then we got Dead Space and we got the Resident Evil series. And, of course, we have stuff like um, Dead Rising, um, the third-person zombie uh, runaround stuff. And we got, like, Left for Dead <laughs> and uh, even DayZ, you know, and, and they got um, the War Z coming out soon. Oh, I wanted to ask you, did you see... The preview for World War Z with Brad Pitt? I haven't seen it. Uh, I, I've seen that it exists. <laughs> That's about it. I was disappointed. 
I, I honestly, I was disappointed because I know the book is epic, and I've heard that they've had problems with the the film production. And I, I looked at, I watched the preview, and and I was not thrilled by it at all. That yeah, that's kind of the impression that I've read from other people as well, especially the people who are fans of the book. And the reason I can explain it is because they've gone very very heavy CGI with it. And it comes across as sort of um, a lot like uh, I Am Legend with Will Smith. Mm-hmm. And I didn't like that either. I don't like my zombie CGI, I guess, or something, because it just doesn't have the same... Because when you watch Walking Dead, they have a dedicated special effects team that just does like the zombies, and they do an amazing job. Yes. And those zombies are fucking creepy. And they are perfect and they use minimum cgi for their stuff it's all practical effects and stuff like that and it works Mm -hmm. and and that stuff looks real it looks scary and terrifying i've been re-watching season two because i I, i've been saving up season three um because i want to watch a whole bunch of it back to back so i've been re-watching season two by the way carl pisses me off more than any other character in the entire series that kid does not deserve to be walking this earth (laughs) now <laughs> the times he tempts fate. Excellent. Uh, if I was a parent, I would just lock him in a cage or something like that, uh, and not not worry about it. But, anyways, so that that that's the reason that series has done so well is because they make the zombie experience so visceral, right? You know, there's that scene where Dale um, get the zombie attacks Dale, and, and Dale's kind of like fending him off. But he has to hold all of his strength to keep the zombie's head from like chomping on him. And so the zombies just start staring into his stomach, and you can see the zombies' like hands like rip into his stomach and just start like pulling out, you know, guts and stuff like that. And again, no CGI; these are all just practical effects and stuff like that. And it is just heart wrenching as you watch it and stuff. And I think that there's a real um, benefit to going with the practical effects over the CGI effects. CGI has its place. I'm not going to say it doesn't, but sometimes you need the practical to, to really solidify you know, the emotional value. That's why uh, Peter Jackson, when they were talking about creating Hobbiton, you know, they were going to use some, but they were going to use the special effects lightly, and they actually did create a lot of Hobbiton practically, right? Right. And, and so there's a place for that. CGI has its place, but it needs to be used sparingly and in the right spots in order to not dominate. So I, I know I'm kind of going off on a rant here, but watch the days uh, the, uh, the the War Z uh, trailer, and you'll see that it's just like all the zombies, everything's just CGI, and it just it has like no emotional impact. Very very cool. No I no, that's that, the point. It's very not cool. No no no, very very cool to you. The, world, the not the World War Z thing, but the. Uh, Walking Dead version, uh, yeah, that was that was an. <laughs> what I'm saying is, I agree with you entirely. Okay. I, I agree with your rant. Is what I'm saying. Yeah. That uh, no, I I I do think that CGI is often overused, uh, particularly because CGI can be incredible and can do some really amazing things, and but if it's not done exactly exactly right it's really the uncanny valley right it, it calls attention to itself it uh it seems slightly off for some reason uh you know it's it's uh i, I agree with you entirely i think that was a great uh I think it, that's a great point and we got to explain that the uncanny valley is this um this uh, effect that has been noted that humans can tell when something's fake right um when something's false it, we, it, you can't really pin it down to, to why, you know, like minute details will hit it. But that uncanny valley is 
you know, our ability to tell a fake and, scene versus a real scene, right? And particularly, you know, when they actually when they use it, it, it often is, uh, is is in regards to a person, right? Yes, yes. Uh, so it's a person, and the you know, and and you're turned off by it immediately. Yeah. Uh, um, and and this has been used in both uh, to refer to animation and to like uh, robots. They use the same kind of yeah. term. Yeah. Uh, that. Uh, and so yeah, it's. Uh, <laughs> Do you, do you ever see that um, Lucas interview where he, they were talking about, you know, they were asking him about special effects and whether a movie could just be all special effects? And he was like, no, 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 no. S- special effects are just supposed to be this this spice that you give it. You know, you can't replace the story with special effects, right? Uh-huh. And it's this really, like, and, and it's an interview he had, obviously, many years ago. Right. And so you watch it now and you're like, wait a minute. Mm-hmm. That's I, don't, I don't think the Lucas now is the same Lucas back then. Yeah, that is excellent. Yeah, yeah, that is that is pretty funny. But no, yeah, I agree. I think I it's so hard to do, and if you're going to do it, you really have to do it right. Like I, I mean, I think I think most of the effects on Lord of the Rings are, are decent. Although rewatching them, there's a couple of places that are kind of jarring. Like I always refer to the last uh, the last Ghost Army as scrubbing wobbles. Yes, um, <laughs> and like that. So, um, but so, but you know, for the most part, I think it works. I'll, I'll, you know, Gollum was, I think, was done wonderfully uh, for a lot of that, and uh, and and I'm sad that he wasn't eligible for uh, an Academy Award uh, because of the animated nature of his character. But um, the actor who who did the motion and everything, uh, yeah. and. So, but yeah, I think I, you really have to do it right. And it's so expensive to do right that I, I think a lot of people would be better served by trying to be creative with working with physical materials. Well, especially like in, in you know, um, when we talk about CGI, you kind of, that, that, that trifecta comes into play that you can have it, um, there's a cheap quality and speed, right? You can only have two of the three, right? Right. You know, when it comes to CGI. So movies like Green Lantern, um, the reason it costs $250 million to make is they had oodles and boodles of CGI that they had to do, and they rushed it, right? They wanted to get all the CGI done in like six months or something crazy, right, in order to meet the uh, the timeline for the movie to be released. And so they just, at some point, they had like six CGI studios working on it or something like that, just mm-hmm. like just trying to churn stuff out and get it done. And and that's why it ultimately looks like a, a very choppy movie, right, because there's not a, a coherent art design that goes through the film and stuff looks disconjointed regardless of the plot you know the plot itself was overly complex you know it should have focused more on Sinestro and just been about introducing the Green Lantern Corps you can't have that many foreign characters dropped on a a movie theater audience and expect them to keep up right you know we can't have Tomo Ray and and um um Kilowog and, and all these other you know Green Lantern cords and then start talking about Parallax and all that other stuff. It, it was way too complex. And then you know Hector Hammond and stuff. It, it needed a lot more focus. But on top of that, the CGI was rushed and looked just bubbly and, and not you know real defined. Yeah, I agree. So yeah, yeah. Some, someday I will rewatch that movie. I have only seen it the one time with the movie. So I I mean, despite its flaws, as I've admitted. I still kind of like it simply because I'm a huge Green Lantern fan. So I own the uh, I own the uh, the Blu-ray of it. Yeah. Okay. Well, good. Then we'll have to have a showing at your house. Yeah. Yeah. And when he says huge Green Lantern fan, that is completely the truth. You got the Green Lantern shirts. You got the the lantern, the portrait, the giant painted portrait. Uh, hat. I got the hat. And I the got hat. The, uh, yeah. The uh, sweater or the I, uh, the I, jacket or something like that. I'm so. impressed. I, I have to say. And I've got a few collector's rings too. So 
I actually thought about going to Comic Con like dressed up in all my Green Lantern gear, but it would have been a bit much. Is that like going to you know to see the man wearing the band shirt? Yeah, exactly. So yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, we've gone to almost an hour and a half, so we all should right. probably start wrapping things up. So let's go ahead and call it here. Um, if you want to reach out to us, I've tried to been, be a bit more active on Twitter uh, and put out more Twitter posts and updates and pictures and stuff like that. So you can reach us at COTB1 in, uh, in Twitter. Yeah, you can find us at comingoutofthebasement.com. Uh, please comment. Derek, I will respond to your comments. I just noticed that you commented on some older ones and as well as a couple other people. So uh, I will respond to those and, uh, and of course, BJ probably will as well. So yeah, find us at comingoutofthebasement.com. I'll put up my Galveston stuff there. And of course, you can email us at podcast at comingoutofthebasement.com. I think one of these days, since Derek is a main poster for Coming Out of the Basement, we should probably have him on the the, uh, the uh, podcast tr- sometime. I've tried. I've tried. His schedule, he's super busy, is, is the problem, much like us. So, uh, yeah, I've tried to have him on before uh, to, to talk about games, because, of course, he has some. He has both very strong opinions that are different from ours, and, and opinions that are different from ours about some of the games we've talked about. So, yes, Derek, since, since I, I know that you listen to this, you know, at some point, Try to get on the show. The gauntlet has been thrown. Yes, exactly. Um, and yeah, uh, if you if there's anything in particular you'd like us to talk about, um, just let us know. Drop us a line. That's how we got the episode about you know DM tips and tools and stuff like that. Uh, we we have a varied experience in the array of gaming and you know tabletops and stuff like that. So yeah, just let, let us know. All right. Catch you later. Bye, everyone. Network interface disabled. Goodbye. <laughs>